0: This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Open your Bibles, if you would, with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Revelation 21. It is a stubborn idea and one that has preoccupied mankind for millennia. It has been called by different names, but ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, each successive generation has searched in their own way for utopia. The idea of utopia is that of a perfect place, a place of happiness, of contentment, of fulfillment, of mankind in perfect harmony. In short, utopia is a perfect society. The term utopia was coined by a man named Thomas More. And More was a political, religious, and philosophical figure of the 16th century. And he wrote a book called Utopia. In it, he imagines a society where everything is shared equally among pious, hardworking individuals. I haven't read the book, but there is one thing that I think he got right. And that's the title. He called it Utopia which in Greek literally means no place. (laughs) Despite this name and the lack of hope that it holds out, that any such place could ever exist, history is full of attempts to form a utopian society. Over and over and again, men and women have tried, and over and over again they have failed. Utopia has proved again and again to be a pipe dream. This magical place is truly no place on the earth that we live on. Still, for each failed attempt to create utopia, another has arisen. The desire for this perfect society is something that is deep in the human heart. Even the patriarch Abraham, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, Looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He left his home. He became a nomad. He journeyed to the land of promise, following the call of God. And he found the promised land, but his desire to find a perfect city founded by God in that land was not fulfilled there. I think tonight we all have to admit that the idea of utopia, of a perfect society, appeals to something deep within us. But we look around at the governments and societies of our world and we see brokenness. No form of government, no new philosophy, no great leader has resulted in utopia. Uh, Even the founders of a country like the United States, who were so profoundly influenced by the principles of Scripture, were unable to create a utopian government or a utopian society. In fact, we laugh at the idea. Our nation is profoundly broken. And we are so far from being a society where contentment and fulfillment and harmony are the order of the day. But one day, The perfect place, the perfect society, will no longer be no place. There will be an eternal city, one that will fulfill Abraham's desire, one which hath foundations and whose builder and maker is God. And it will exist on this earth, and we're going to consider that city tonight. As we consider this city, um, this utopia, if you will, we'll learn some profound truths about God, who is its founder and maker. And we'll find further revelation of the Christ who we've been considering in this final book of the Bible. Just to remind you of where we find ourselves as we, as we enter Revelation 21. Uh, as chapter 20 closes out, uh, Satan has been fully and finally defeated He and his servants have been cast into the lake of fire, along with all those not found written in the book of life. As we enter Revelation 21, we turn our attention away from that awful picture, and we find something altogether different. So let's consider, in chapter 21 of Revelation, the appearance of the city. Uh, If you would look with me at verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, John says there, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, I'm not going to read all of verses 11 through 21, but he goes on to describe the city in those verses. And John describes the beautiful light that is emanating from the city, a high wall with 12 gates, each made out of a single pearl, each gate bearing the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He talks about a 12-layer foundation, each layer made of a different precious stone, and each one bearing one of the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. The walls are made of jasper, and the streets, as we all know, are made of pure gold. We also find that the city is 12,000 furlongs, wide, long, and tall. And for, to help us with understanding, 12,000 furlongs is roughly 1,500 miles. And so if, like me, you don't know how to figure out how much 1,500 miles is. If you, if you could throw a rock 1,500 miles due west, it would land somewhere close to Colorado Springs. And from the northernmost tip of Maine down to Tampa, Florida, as the crow flies, is about 1,500 miles. That's the size of this city, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. What a description. It stretches our imaginations to try to think about the beauty and the immensity of such a city. And I've seen multiple attempts to illustrate this vision, and each one falls so pitifully short of the majesty and beauty that most certainly are represented in this passage as John describes this it's hard to begin to wrap our minds around what this will actually look like. Even if you just take one detail and you try to look at these gemstones and, and figure out what's that, what that's going to look like, um, you'll find as many different representations of what those may look like as, as, you, as you find um, entries online if you search as I did. Um, even just take one, Jasper for example. Uh, Jasper, is mentioned three times in the description of this city. And the jasper stone can vary in color from bright yet red to a deep yellow to mottled green. It can be a single color, or it can hold a rainbow of colors. So even just this one stone, we say, it's, uh, there's a layer of jasper, the walls are made of jasper. What does that look like? We'll find out when we get there. But it's just one example. This description gives us just the smallest bit of an imagination of what this city will look like. And it ought to be something that excites us and it whets our appetite for the beauties of this city. Actually, it's a bit tantalizing that we don't get more description, especially of what is inside the city. Still, we can certainly see that this city will be both immensely impressive And breathtakingly beautiful. So, why does John go into this description? Uh, What does this tell us? Well, of course, it tells us something about what the future holds, but I would also tell you it, it tells us something about God. This teaches us that God loves beauty, it is good and right. For us to appreciate and enjoy and even to celebrate the beauty of what God has created. A well-known verse, Philippians 4.8, tells us the, the sort of things we ought to think about. And we go to that verse often when we're trying to line our thoughts up with what we ought to be spending our mind thinking about. And there's a whole list there. It, it talks about thinking about things that are true and honest and just and pure and then it says whatsoever things are lovely whatsoever things are of good report if there be any virtue if there be any praise think on these things so it is good and it is right for us to think on the the lovely things the beautiful things God loves beauty and God created us to love beauty he is the author of beauty and as we think about that in our own lives I believe we ought to take it to heart to consider that we ought to desire to do things well. We often go to that verse that talks about the fact that God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And of course that is so important and it is, it is so vital that our heart be what it ought to be before God. But we also ought to give the right kind of attention to the things that are external. God cares about the appearance of this city. He goes into great description about what it's going to look like because God loves beauty. And God desires us to appreciate and to seek to make the most of the beautiful things that he has given us and let them point back to him for his glory. I think that ought to be a principle that guides us in our own lives. We ought to strive for excellence to do what best pleases and brings glory to God. I think it also ought to govern what we do together as a church. The way we behave together, the way we present ourselves, the way we care for and beautify the resources that God has given us. Those things do matter. Now, I don't want to make more of that than we should, but I do believe that God loves beauty, and this city will be beautiful in every aspect. And for all eternity, God has created his his people to enjoy that beauty. And that ought to reflect in our lives even now. There have been many attempts in history to design buildings and cities that are both beautiful and practical. Even the great Leonardo da Vinci tried his hand at this. Um, he, He made an effort at city planning, and did quite a bit of work. He, he created diagrams, sketches, descriptions of the aspects of what he considered an ideal city. He had a lot of it planned out. Now None of it was ever built, but this city would have been built on multiple levels with careful plans for what travel and business would happen on which level, and many people even today celebrate his plans as far beyond their time. And some would suggest that they would indeed have resulted in an attractive, well organized, and efficient city. But that would not have made Utopia. Even if it was built just right, we understand at the end of the day what is it that makes or breaks a city? It's not the architecture, it's the inhabitants. Now, one 15th century woman, Christine de Pizan, thought she had the answer. She imagined utopia as a city inhabited only by women. <laughs> and I'm not going to ask you whether or not you think that she got it right. But joking aside, we, we do know the inhabitants of a city are important. And so as we look at the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21... We love to bask in the beautiful architecture, but we, it begs the question, who are the inhabitants? Who is living in this city? Who is worthy to be part of this perfect city? Well, verse 24 of Revelation 21 begins, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. That word saved, it's a simple word but it is rightly full of meaning for us. Because this is not just saying, these are those who survived through all of the the awful things that happened in this book. This is speaking about those who are redeemed. And verse 27 confirms this when it tells us that the inhabitants are they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The inhabitants of the New Jerusalem are the redeemed. These are those who, like John, as he rejoiced in Revelation 1-5, have had their sins washed in the blood of Christ. So what does this tell us about God? If we look at this city and find that the inhabitants are the redeemed, well, it tells us that God loves mercy. After all, as Titus 3-5 tells us, it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And here in Revelation 21, we find those who've been saved by the mercy of God. And I can happily and confidently say that I will be among them experiencing the fulfillment of that hope the inhabitants of the city are the redeemed. It is only those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, only those whose names are written in his book of life, only the saved. But notice what Revelation 21 says, what else it says about the inhabitants. Picking up again in verse 24, it said, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Twice in those verses there's a reference to the nations, referring to the various cultural groups of our world. And so we find that the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem are from all nations. They are the redeemed... Of all nations. And there is an emphasis placed on that point. It might to some seem like that's an odd aspect to focus on here. But I think the fact that it gets this focus focus tells us something significant about God. God loves mercy, and that's why it's the redeemed, but also God loves diversity. We can sometimes get the idea that in heaven, all of our differences will disappear, and we will just be an enormous, bland-looking throng of people in white robes that you can barely tell apart from each other. Sometimes that's the idea that comes into our minds. But that is not true according to the description that we find in Revelation 21. John tells us that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into this city. Now, that's interesting because we think, well, how could there be glory and honor from anything other than God being brought into this city? I think, I believe this is a reference to the things that are good and true and beautiful that are a part of the culture and society of people groups around the world. And I believe that those things are going to adorn this eternal city. I don't know about you, but I love experiencing the incredible diversity of food and art and design that the nations of the world have to offer. And in the New Jerusalem, we'll have the opportunity to enjoy all of the best aspects of that diversity without having to worry about the sinful or idolatrous aspects that are so often connected with it today. I believe that in the New Jerusalem, the bounds of human craftsmanship and creativity are going to be pushed to places that we cannot begin to imagine today. And I believe that all of that causes God's heart to rejoice. God loves diversity. Not a diversity that includes things that are sinful or offensive. We know that. But the natural creative diversity of a human soul created in God's image. The inhabitants of this city are from all nations. And there is a beauty and a diversity in that. Remember Revelation 5-9, one of the, the great songs of praise of this book? And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. We find this emphasis through this book, and I believe that it will be something we'll all be able to rejoice in for all of eternity. How interesting and how beautiful that the international aspect of the inhabitants of the New Jerusalem gets this focus. In the 17th century, Francis Bacon, a philosopher and the Lord High Chancellor of England, had his own ideas about an achievable utopia. At the heart of his conception of a perfect society was a commitment to science. He saw scientific inquiry as key, specifically in the pursuit of technology. He imagined that a society with advanced technology built on the principles of well-practiced science would be a society in harmony. History has, in stunning fashion, proved him wrong. Neither education, nor science, nor technology have formed a perfect society. None of those things has proved to be our savior. Each is good in its place, but each can also be twisted and used for evil. And we see that all too clearly in our world today. The problem is that the true result of knowledge and technology rests in the hands of those who make the advances and in the hands of those to whom they entrust those advances. And the impure hearts of men can easily twist what could otherwise be great tools for good into tools for evil that is why it's key as we consider this new jerusalem that we note that one of its key characteristics is the purity of the city notice verse 27 and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. There are both positive and negative aspects of purity. Here we see the negative aspect. We see that there are certain things that will not and must not have a part in this city. There is nothing that defiles. And that idea goes back to, it causes us to think about the Old Testament, uh, Israel's ceremonial law about things that were unclean. And so, here in the New Jerusalem, there will be nothing that is unclean. There will be no death, no sickness, no brokenness, no stain. There will be nothing abominable. There will be no deceit. Verse 3 of chapter 22 shares that there will be no more curse. The brokenness of the world will be gone. And, of course, we understand this is God has made a new world. This is not the broken, sin-cursed world on which we live. God has made all things new. But there are many things that we will never find in this eternal city. And the list that we could compile of all that will be barred from that city seems like it could go on forever. Uh, there will be no more poverty. No more decay, no more violence, no more hatred, no more gossip, no more pride. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This is the negative side of purity, the things that must not enter the city but praise God that they'll be banished from its walls forever. There are a couple of different refining process, processes that are used for gold. And I'm not going to go into the details, mostly because I don't really understand um, what's happening. But one process uh, uses heat and chlorine gas, and it results in gold that is 99.5% pure. Another process makes use of Hydrochloric acid, gold chloride, and an electrical current, and results in gold that is 99.9% pure. And just as a disclaimer, don't try either one at home. I do not begin to understand the chemical processes that are going on, but I do understand the basic principle. You can't get pure gold unless the impurities are removed. But I also understand an even more basic principle. You can't end up with pure gold if you don't have gold to start with. So purity is not just negative. It's not just about what's missing. It's about what's there. And so we also see here the positive side of purity. Chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, Then on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So there's a pure, life-giving river. There's a fruitful, life-giving tree. There is healing. This is a picture of nourishment and health and well-being, and and notice also at the end of verse 3 that it says his servants shall serve him. There's purpose. There is work to do, even as we considered this morning in our adult Bible fellowships. There is a worthy master to serve, and think with me for a moment about how incredibly satisfying and fulfilling it will be to serve God with a glorified body and a pure heart for all of eternity. Even as we considered this morning in our classes, what a wonderful gift that kind of work will be. So, as we see both what will be lacking and what will be present in this city, we see that God loves purity. God loves that which is void of sin and wickedness and that which is full of life and light. It is not hard to go online and find a list of failed attempts at utopia. And I've spent probably more time on this than I should have. But people's conceptions of utopia have taken some many forms through the centuries. Some people have imagined a society that was just built on high moral ideals. If the moral ideals are high enough, the society will be what it ought to be. Others have... Imagined a society that is strictly controlled by laws that govern every aspect of life. And they thought that's the secret. Others have imagined the exact opposite a society that's completely devoid of rules and given over to the pursuit of pleasure. This concept of utopia, the perfect society, is behind many cults. And we all know how most cults end up. Generation after generation, group after group has arisen with a new idea of what would make the perfect society. I, we've figured out the idea. We've figured out the key. We've figured out what the foundation needs to be that we'll lay and then we'll be able to build this perfect society. And everyone has failed. And for everyone that has failed, another one has arisen. Why is it that they've all failed? Well, it's because something in the foundation on which each of these societies was built was flawed. And if there's a flaw in the foundation, it's not going to be long before everything comes toppling down. And so we've looked at the New Jerusalem and considered what it looks like and who's going to live there and, and the purity that's going to be, be uh, the description of what, what's going on there. But what is the key to this city? What is the foundation on on which it is laid? What is the secret to this perfect city, this utopia that's actually going to work? Well, consider with me the light of the city. Note with me back in Revelation 21, verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is the key. This is the secret to utopia. This is This city is the tabernacle of God. God himself shall be with them. It's God's presence. If I asked you tonight to tell me, what is the Bible about? And I I, I don't want an essay on this. I want you to tell me in a sentence or in a phrase. What is the Bible about? Now, that's a tough proposition, but as I've thought about it, if I had to choose one word, I think I would choose the word Emmanuel. The Bible is the story of Emmanuel, God with us. As you read through Scripture and you consider the story of God's interaction with man, we find that God's great desire is to dwell with mankind. And to receive his worship. He's working to gather a people for himself, a people who will be his own and who will be his own for all of eternity. As we look at the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem, do you remember what was on those gates? It's the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that reminds us what was God doing? He was calling forth a nation to be his people. And as you look at the 12 foundations, what do we find on those foundations? The 12, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 apostles of Christ. What was God doing? He was sending his son to be with us to say, come to me and be my people. And those 12 apostles are the picture of the beginning of that. The beginning of the church. God's desire for a people is what we find brought to its fulfillment here in the New Jerusalem. God's great purpose is completed. And all of eternity, it's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. God himself shall be with them and be their God. And that, God's presence is what makes the new Jerusalem the perfect eternal city that it is. Revelation 21 verse 22 tells us, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. The New Jerusalem is a city of eternal light. And what is the source of that light? It is the Christ who we have seen revealed throughout this amazing book. He is at the center of this amazing city. He is the light of the New Jerusalem. He is the light of eternity. Consider the verses with which we'll close our consideration of Christ tonight. Revelation 22. Verses 3 through 5. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I hope that these things excite you the way that it excites me to consider them. Rejoice in these truths. Our mouths ought to water at the prospect of our eternal home. Our minds ought to race with the thinly veiled wonders that await us. Our hearts ought to burn for that reality of the light of God for all eternity. But as we think about this city, and consider all of these things about the city that we've thought about tonight, it begs a question. Are you ready for eternity in the new Jerusalem? Of course, you're certainly not ready if you're not one of those whose name is written in the book of life of the Lamb. Perhaps you're one of those who, through the ages, have dismissed this whole concept as another person's dream of utopia as i was searching online i came across one place where it had a list of different people who have imagined utopia and one of the things on their list was the new jerusalem that's what many people think of this it's it's some religious man's dream about what he would love to happen what what he wishes would be the reality And he thought, oh, this sounds great. I'm going to write it down and say it's what awaits us. And that we know is not true. But I can't convince you of that. Any more than I can convince you that anything in this word of God is true or is from God. God himself has to do the work of convincing. But if you're there tonight and you say, well, that was was fun, but I don't really buy into all of that consider again. And as God's Spirit touches your heart, yield to that. And realize, this is not my dream. This is not John's dream. This is not a, we're hoping for, or this sounds great if this would happen. This is the reality of God's Word. And if you are not in the Lamb's Book of Life, This is what you will be missing. If his spirit is convincing you of your sin, of the righteousness of Christ, of the judgment that you face, and of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, yield to his work and come to him and recognize this could be my future reality. We don't come to Christ because of this. But what a wonderful blessing it is, and what a wonderful God it shows us him to be. So come to Christ tonight. I I do not believe, uh, or I do believe, uh, I'm addressing primarily, if not only, Christians tonight. For us, the question to consider is, how well is my life prepared for what awaits me? Let me ask it this way, how well does my life reflect what God loves? We considered tonight that God loves beauty, and God loves mercy, and God loves diversity, and God loves purity. Is my life in line with what God loves? How well are God's thoughts on those matters mirrored in my own thoughts? How does my life display what is going to be natural and right for me to display one day when I live in that city? How much am I living now like I'll be living then? How well prepared am I for eternity there? Is my heart and life in line with the things that will be celebrated and emphasized there? In the New Jerusalem? Am I finding my delight in what God loves? And is He finding His delight in me? Are you ready for the New Jerusalem? Are you ready to enter the presence of the one who will forever be the light of that wonderful city? Let's pray. Our Father, these these truths are both wonderful and convicting tonight. Wonderful because it just shows us, once again, how big you are, how much you love us, how great everything you do is. You hold nothing back. And Father, I thank you for that. Lord, it's also convicting because you have this future prepared for us, who deserve nothing. And so often, Father, we just get our eyes on ourselves, and we don't live in service to you. We we don't live according to the things that you love. We don't live to delight you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to rejoice in these truths. Help us to look forward to what we have to enjoy with you for all of eternity. Help it to be something that is deep in our hearts. We look forward to that day. But Lord, help this also to urge us ever onward for you. That we would be prepared even in our lives now for what we'll experience for eternity. That we would live our lives consciously in your presence now. And in the light of the truth that you've given us. Guide us in this, we pray. Help us be ready for that. Help us to live in the light of the one who will be our light for all of eternity. And Lord, if there is someone here tonight who doesn't know you as Savior, help them to recognize the gravity of that. And help them come to Christ tonight. Father, as we respond to your work in our hearts, help us to do it uh, purely and honestly and in the way that best pleases you and obeys your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and we wanna encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.